Welcome to the Radiant Church Podcast. I'm glad you're here. Grab a Bible or open up your favorite Bible app as we get into God's Word together. Hey, good morning, Radiant Church. Hey, man, if you have your Bibles, and I really hope you do, go ahead and pull them out, turn them on, and open up to Luke chapter 2. We have just begun a brand new series, Walking Through the Gospel According to Luke really doing a survey of the gospel, going kind of one chapter at a time, looking at the big picture of Luke's writing and Luke's gospel. So this is your very first time with us. You came on a great Sunday. We are just getting started. I want to read these first uh, seven verses, and then I want to pray for us. Luke chapter 2 is probably one of the most familiar of the chapters in the Luke. It tells the Christmas story, the, the birth story. The, the angel appearing to shepherds, the Simeon's prophecy, things that we may read during the holidays and maybe even read pretty casually with family and friends, which is not a bad thing. But today, I don't want to just tell a Christmas story. I want to tell a gospel story and maybe even point to something that's often overlooked in Luke's telling of the story today. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Today, I want to talk briefly on the subject of the gospel for the rest of us. The gospel for the rest of us. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm in desperate need of your power in this moment. God, we need more than words of men. We need to hear from you. So God, would you move me out of the way to make your word come alive in all of our hearing, to let it burn in our hearts and lead us to repentance and recommitment. And God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It's in Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said, amen and amen. A familiar story of Jesus in a manger, um, five-pound, eight-ounce baby Jesus is oftentimes the, this, the thrust of this passage, is the baby is born, and we celebrate with nativity scenes and other things, but Luke is including this more than just a detached telling of a story. There's something I believe that he wants us to see. As a matter of fact, for me, one of the most puzzling truths in the book of Luke is found right here in chapter 2. But before we get to that, let me lay down a foundation. So we're going to work backwards through the chapter. Is that all right? We're doing it anyway, but I appreciate you. Uh, I got my notes. That's where we're going. So let's start from the back. So this is the birth of Jesus. You remember in Luke chapter 1, we saw prophecy and song as Mary burst out into song. Zechariah began to prophesy about both John the Baptist and Jesus. And there was this great foretelling. 
And that was not incidental to the story because before Mary burst out in song and Zechariah began to prophecy, there had been no word from the Lord for hundreds of years, oftentimes called the intertestamental period. The last prophet, Malachi, passed away, and there seemed to be no word from heaven. And so for about 500 years, the Jewish nation held on to this promise that one day a Messiah is going to come. But then they were conquered by nation after nation, the Assyrians, Greeks, and now even Rome. And so, like many of us, we have these great promises to hold on to that God has clearly said that a deliverer, a Messiah, would come, and yet they seem to be going further and further away from having a nation unto themselves. And then outbreaks Mary in song, outbreaks Zechariah in prophecy, and the heavens were opened again, declaring that I have said what I've said, and I'm going to do that which I promised. And Luke chapter 2 is the fulfillment of that process. Even those around who were waiting for this didn't quite understand the implications, and that's where we're going to start, because there was two devout Jews who were waiting for the Messiah, and they're found in verse 25 through 38. You see these two devout Jews waiting. One was Simeon, the other was Anna, um, or Anna, the Jewish pronunciation, my sister's name. She will correct you if you call her Anna. It's Anna. These two devout believers waiting on the promise of the Lord. And we're going to work backwards through it. So the, the announcement has happened. Jesus has been born. And shortly thereafter, during the purification symbol, a man named Simeon was led by the Spirit. In verse 26, I'm picking up. It had been revealed to him, Simeon, by the Holy Spirit, that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. What a great promise, man. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. When the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to perform for him what was customary under the law, such as circumcision, the, the buying back of the firstborn, all the rights of having a child that was required under the law, they were at the temple doing that. And verse 28, Simeon took him up in his arms and praised God and said, pause for just a moment. Simeon just grabbed somebody's baby, y'all. I don't think y'all, I don't think y'all caught how excited this man is. He walks up and sees a baby and says, that's the Messiah, and just grabs him and begins to prophesy and says, now, master, you can dismiss your servant in peace. He's saying, now I can die. As you promised, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all the peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people, Israel. His mother and father were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed. And a sword will pierce your own soul that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. You see, Simeon um, is prophesying things that he doesn't even know about that will one day be revealed. And the first part of his prophecy is that part which oftentimes gets read around Christmas time. Is you are a light for the Gentiles and glory to your people, Israel, the promise of God has finally come. I can die in peace. For God, you have kept your promises. We did a baby dedication today, but how many parents are praying that same prayer for their children? God, if you can just rescue my children, then I can die in peace. That is the hope that Simeon had, except for it was for his people that the Messiah would come. But there's a little foreshadowing here in verse 34. 
It says, indeed, this child is to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel. What does Simeon mean that the child is destined to call the fall and rise? Now, on a first glance, that may mean, okay, it sounds like some people are going to like it. Some people are not going to like it. Some people are going to be benefited by it. Some people are going to be hurt by it. But these words are deeper than that. You see, the word rise here literally means ascension, resurrection. This fall here is related to the story in Matthew. Some of you may know the story about the houses that were built on a solid foundation, the houses that were built on sand. It says that house that was built on sand when the winds and wave came, the house crashed with a great crash and was destroyed. That same crash is the word for fall right here. It's alluding to sin and damnation. And this is the first point. If y'all are going to write down anything, write this down. Jesus is the pivot point of salvation. He's the hinge upon which salvation turns. There are some in our society today that out of a genuine heart of compassion try to diminish the gospel message and say, well, no, if you rightly believe in anything, if you have enough faith in whatever you believe, it's a genuine faith in anything that saves you. Surely God wouldn't punish someone who sincerely believes another faith. But no, upon this child is destined to cause the rise and fall of many. You see, there are many paths to Jesus, but there is only one path to God, and that is through Jesus. And I don't know what you have heard. I don't know what you have thought about Christianity, but it, it is an exclusivist religion. There is only one way to him, and that is through Jesus. And if you don't have an active, thriving relationship with the living God, you are lost. It doesn't matter how often you go to church. It doesn't matter how often you read your Bible. It doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how better you are compared to your brothers and your sisters. If you do not have a relationship with the resurrected Christ, you are lost because upon him, the rise and fall of many is determined. And so Jesus is the hinge of all salvation. And Simeon recognizes that and breaks out into prophecy about it. And shortly thereafter, a woman named Anna, who was a prophetess, she had been married for just a few years and a widow for 84 years, a devout coming to the temple every day to worship. And verse 38 says that at that very moment, while Simeon was prophesying, she came up and began to thank God to speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. An elderly man who could not work and could not produce, a widow who was at the lowest rung of society, probably depended upon family and the temple tax itself to support her. These were the people to whom Christ was revealed. This is the best news that's ever happened in America, in any country, at any time. The gospel is the best news, period. Not the best news that day, not the best news in ancient Near East Palestine, But Jesus coming into the world is the best news that anyone has ever heard at any point in time from anybody. And you're here because many of you believe that. You're here because some of you don't and you're wanting to explore that, and that's okay too. But we understand at least at a baseline that there's something special about Jesus coming. Here's what I can't understand, though, family. Why did the gospel come first to those we see here in Luke chapter 2? Why an elderly man? Why a widow? And most disturbing to me, why shepherds in a field? You see, I skipped over verses 8 through 20. See, after Jesus was born, the first people 
to see Jesus and to have be revealed that the Messiah has come were shepherds out in the field. Some of you know the story, but pick it up in verse 8. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over the flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them. And listen carefully to the words. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you that you will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts with an angel praising God and saying, glory to God, the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. And that's the image that sometimes we play at Christmas time is this angel. There's actually a Rembrandt painting. It's a really famous depiction of this exact scene of an angel breaking forth in darkness and an angel appearing to shepherds out in the field. And then a whole choir of angels suddenly appears singing and proclaiming that Jesus has come. That makes sense to me, though. The heavens roaring at the sound of Jesus being born, that makes sense to me. What doesn't make sense to me, and maybe makes sense to you, is why come to shepherds first? You see, we have an idealized view of shepherds in our day and age, mostly because none of us have ever done the work, so we think it's cute and fun work. But in Jewish times, shepherds were seen as outcasts. They worked with unclean animals. They had to travel with their, their flock, and so they weren't able to observe the, the, the regular observances of the law and the temple feasts and fasts and Sabbaths, and so they were seen as bad Jews unclean people, outcasts, irreligious folk. If the best news that ever came into creation broke forth, who would you tell first? I asked my wife this question the other day. I said, hey, if the best thing that ever happened to you happened to you, who would you tell first? Without hesitation, she said, my mom. I said, all right, fine, that's cool. <laughs> like, I, I just live with you, that's, that's cool though. Um, <laughs> but then she explained, she's like, I get it. Because I'm, I usually don't get excited about a whole bunch of stuff, y'all. I'm pretty, I'm pretty even keeled most of the time. And so if I'm excited, I need to tell somebody who's gonna be excited. Right, if I'm mad at such and such and such, you need to be mad at such and such and such. I don't care that she's right and I'm wrong, right? We wanna tell people who wanna give that response that we want. But if I'm God, which I'm not, but I sometimes think I am, you do too, don't, don't look at me like that. Well, who would you tell first if the promised Messiah had finally come? Maybe Herod, right? The ruler of Judea. Maybe the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious rulers who had the clout to basically rubber stamp Jesus' message as authentic and official. Maybe tell the wealthy in the nation so they could gather resources and build Jesus a huge radio ministry so that he could reach more people. You would almost tell anybody except for the people that God decided to tell. You see that even if shepherds walked into the city and said angels came to us, they were seen as such outsiders, people wouldn't even believe them. What was God thinking? Wasting this big reveal on people like them. This is my only point today, y'all. And I think this is the point of the passage here. This is what we need to get, if anything else, from Luke chapter 2. 
This is good news, the best news that has ever happened. The Messiah, the Redeemer, the sacrifice for your sins and my sins has finally come to take away the sins of the world and to take away all the divisions and tear down the dividing wall of hostility and make one new people out of many people. That is good news. But who the good news was told to is, I think, what Luke is trying to point us to. You see, he told shepherds. He told an old elderly prophetess. He told an old man who is not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. We have no idea who he is, a relatively unknown person. I believe because he's telling us, the gospel is telling us what Christianity needs in order to survive. You see, I would tell Herod because I think Christianity needs power. I would tell the Sanhedrin because I believe that Christianity needs clout and credibility in in the affirmation of those in charge. I would tell the wealthy because I think the gospel might need money to go further and farther. But no, the gospel does not need power, y'all. It needs worship. The gospel doesn't need power. The gospel doesn't need our participation in helping God out. It only needs our worship. And we're nodding our heads, but do you realize the implications? What do you think Christians are known for in America right now? Is it like the woman at the well? I I knew a man who knew all my sins and and yet called me in. Is that what we're known for? Or we've had a vision of glory as I was a sinner, as Timothy, as it says in Timothy, that I was a chief of all sinners, but God saved me so that he can show that he can save anyone. Is that what we're known for? Being people of redemption, being people of grace, being people of forgiveness, being people of the gospel. I think that many of us have fallen into the trap of believing the gospel needs our help. And so we need power in order for the church to survive. We need political influence in order for the church to survive. We need clout and legislation in order for the church to survive. And so we fight and clamor for our rights and for our laws. And so all for good reasons. But even in the birth of Jesus, God is reminding us he doesn't need our help. He doesn't need our money. He doesn't need our political power. All he needs and all he demands is our worship. You know, it'd be okay if Christianity was illegal. It'd be okay. It'd be okay if churches lost their tax exempt status. It'd be okay. It'd be okay if they pass a mandatory vaccination law. It'd be okay. Because that's not, what we're, that's not what we're primarily about. You can take away all those things and all those protections, and you haven't yet touched who we are as a people. Because we're people of redemption. We're people of the gospel. We're people here to tell about a man who saved us from our sins, and even if it costs me something, I'm going to tell somebody. Look at, how the, look at how the shepherds responded. They went and found Mary in verse 20. It says, The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had seen and heard, which they had just been told about. We just sang a song about how good God has been. Do the people at your job know how good God has been, or do they know which candidate you voted for? Oh, I'm getting in everybody's toes today. What do they know about you? Do they know your position on vaccines and masks, or do they know about a man who saved you, who's been good to you, 
who found you in the midnight hour and persevered and stayed with you and was a friend to you. Y'all, I'm not assigning motives to this. I, I really do believe that Christians who are out there fighting, they're doing it for good reasons because they I want to believe that they want to protect the gospel. They want to protect religious liberty so that we can evangelize the world, so we can share the gospel. These are all good things, y'all. And I served in the Marine Corps willing to fight and die for those things. Like, they're not bad things. They're just not the most important things. Jesus was a baby. I want you to really think about this for a moment. Jesus was a baby. Simeon walked into the temple and immediately recognized him as the Messiah. Do you understand the power of the gospel? Do you understand the power that even as a child that Jesus has? He doesn't need our help. It's nice that we have religious liberty. It's nice that we can gather out in the open like this. But if you look globally where the church is growing the fastest, they have none of these religious protections. They don't have time to have these cultural debates. And yet, I think the rate in Nigeria is there's one person coming to Christ every seven minutes. I think it's the last number I saw. Someone coming to Christ. Just in the time that we've been talking, there's been a few dozen people coming to know the Lord in a place where they could die for confessing Jesus. All I'm saying is the gospel doesn't need our power, y'all. It needs our worship. Jesus can do this thing, y'all. You remember, I don't know if you've ever done this, you ever had this moment where you shared the gospel with somebody and you asked them, hey man, do you, do you want to accept Jesus? And they say, yeah. And you have no idea what to do next because you didn't expect that to happen. <laughs> right? It's like, because all you did was just tell a story. You didn't even do it well. You misquoted some Bible verses. You messed up all this other stuff. And all you're thinking about in the back of your mind is, ah, oh, man, I messed this up. And they're like, yeah, I want that. Why? because the gospel has power. Jesus draws and calls and saves. All we do is worship and give glory and tell the story. Everything else is not bad or good. It's just extra. So here's the challenge for us as a people. I can't talk about every church everywhere and every Christian, but at Radiant, what must we be known for? And God, I pray that we are not known for our stance on political issues, although we have some stands on some political issues. I pray that we are known, not known primarily for our stance on justice, although we have some stands on justice. I pray that primarily we'd be known as a people of redemption, a people who've been changed by a God who we can't shut up about, who we're talking to everybody who will listen, and even some that won't, just like the shepherds. You think about it, they're shepherds. No one cares what they think. No one cares that they, no one even believes them, and yet they're going from house to house to village, praising God and celebrating what they have seen. Luke chapter 2 is the story of the birth of Jesus and the promise that God keeps and should give us assurance that God will continue to keep his promises. But it's also a reminder for us today that what we should be primarily about is not seeking to protect the gospel with power or legislation or money. The world isn't going to be changed by better programs. You've heard this week in and week out from Pastor Nia and myself. It's not better people or better programs that's going to change North Charleston. It's transformed people. People who've met Jesus 
and tell everybody who will listen about that man? Will we commit to be a people that's known for that above all things? Not that we don't talk about other things, not that we don't care about other things, but if it comes between fighting for policy and fighting for the credibility of the gospel, we're going to choose the gospel every time. Even if it says, you know what, you're right, mom, you're right, dad, you're right, uncle, you're right, neighbor, you're right. I mean, it's okay. We don't have to fight about that. We clearly disagree on presidential policy, on Afghanistan policy, on mass policy. Can I ask you a question about Jesus, though? Who is he to you? Let me tell you who he is to me. Can we get to that place where that's what's most important? Is where somebody eternal soul is headed, not which policy they agree with or not? The gospel has power. Even as a baby, Jesus was calling people unto himself. And he is still calling those. If we would allow us to be vessels of redemption and restoration and reconciliation to God, we would see great things happen, even if it costs us something along the way. Let me pray for us. Thank you for joining our family in North Charleston as we heard God's word preached today. We would love to connect with you. You can find us online on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Send us a message to learn more about what Radiant Church is doing or support the vision of Radiant Church at radiantcharleston.com giving.